as we speak, if you do not have one, we'd love for you to be a part of it. See Corey for his group. Um, see David, Ryan, Kimsey. If you're, you want something for more of the older crowd, the 30-somethings, um, see Jeremy Clark. I guess he said, though, you have to have a kid or be making kids or something because everyone else has kids. I don't know. Just talk to Jeremy if you were part of the, old, the seasoned generation. Okay, we'll call him that. Uh, so, but don't forget to David Dowdy on stage last week said 200 people in small group and he goes clean shaven. And I would even probably say if we go 300 people, can we go straight to the razor? Forget the clipping. Can we go straight razor on it or wax? Will you wax? Oh, oh, can we do the back? Let's wax the back. 300 people and $50. Ooh, we get 300 people and I give him $50. He'll wax his back. Ooh, that'd be fun. 40-year-old virgin all over again. Um, Next week, don't forget, no service. I know we would all love to be here. You can be here if you like. That Christ community will be um, having a great turkey dinner here. It's really good. Tickets, I think, are $3 a person if you're interested. But we will not be meeting next week. We will resume meeting uh, the 31st, 30 days, half September, April, June, November. uh, 1st of December, I believe, here. Is that the right date? 1st of December here at 6.30. So we're going to be taking a hiatus for one week while you all go Thanksgiving-ing with your families. Um, Let's see. With that, don't forget tomorrow, the 18th, is officially Revolution Day on the calendar. I have no idea what it means. But on the calendar, the official United States calendar says Revolution Day. So here's my thing. Talk to one person about the church you're a part of. If this is what you call home, talk about revolution tomorrow. And just maybe, hey, we're not meeting Sunday, but I'd love to invite you the next week. Just a simple way to start a conversation. I don't know. Um, but that's a great opportunity, so think about that. Uh, when we come back on the 1st of December, we'll be starting the Advent um, Christmas, where we purchase gifts for those in town um, locally who don't have the opportunity to have a, as good of a Christmas as you or I might be able to. Um, it might be as simple as just... Not eating as many meals, so you can put 10, 15 bucks together to buy some gifts for just some kids. So be thinking about that, maybe throwing aside a couple extra dollars to make that happen. Um, Last week, David Dowdy talked, okay? Who can tell me something about David Dowdy that we learned about him last week? Anything. Does anybody know besides Kelly? He knows, we really know he likes Kelly Clarkson better. But who was the female artist that... Musically influences David Dowdy. Does anybody remember? Katy Perry. I saw her this week. She did not look good, bro. I'm just saying. Kelly Clarkson, way more attractive. She's a much better singer. You're wrong. That's okay. It happens. But also, more importantly, what's kind of what, what did David really bring to us in a message last week? Start, it's a word that starts with an M. More what? More what? Moral argument. I couldn't see you, honestly. The moral argument for the existence of God. Okay, and there were three steps on that. And I honestly can't tell you what those three were. I can't remember the wording of it. But I've asked David to make sure he puts that on his, maybe his Facebook page or somewhere out there to where I can learn it and memorize it because it's a real simple argument to show that morality and God, are they can't coexist without each other. So it was a really good message. Um, and I'm excited tonight. We're going to meet Corey, and he's going to continue talking and teaching us. Before we do that, it's a real quiet Sunday night, I know, but Thanksgiving is coming. Last week, we, we met other people. We found out what food people like, stuffing or pumpkin pie. But here's what I want us to do now. We're going to take 30 seconds, stand up, meet someone, and there's not a whole lot of people, so you might have to walk a little farther. That's okay. What I want you to do is think about the one thing that you're most thankful for that someone else might not think about. 
We're very thankful for family. We're very thankful for what God has done in our lives. We know that, okay? We're going to assume that stuff, that, that stuff is, is there. I want to know what's the most obscure thing that you're honestly thankful for. For me, it's toilet paper. Could you imagine life without toilet paper? I mean, really. So think about it. Maybe it's your toothbrush. Maybe it's your cruise control. Maybe it's that cute little Snuggie that you don't tell anybody about. I don't know. So we're going to take 30 seconds, throw some music back on. Think of the most obscure thing that you're thankful for and meet someone new. So there's 30 seconds. We're going to turn the music up. Everyone stand up. Okay. Meet someone you don't know. The most obscure thing that you're thankful for. Guys, let's go ahead and have a seat. Come on back. Someone tell me a most obscure thing you're thankful for. Come on. Carpet. Carpet. Hardwood floors any day, my friend. You're 0 for 2. <laughs> Scones. Stoves. Gas or electric. Yeah, there we go. What else? Obscure. What? Candy. Okay, that's kind of, you know, fifth grade, but that's cool. It happens, you know. What else? For me, aww, free Penn Station next time you come in. Okay, well, hey, guys, this is Corey. Everyone say hi, Corey. How y'all Co- doing? Corey, why don't you first tell us, tell us your name, kind of where, what brought you to this point. We just want to get to know you. You're part of the leadership team now. Um, kind of just give us a 40-second glimpse of you, um, Corey. All right, my name is Corey Reed. Um, I grew up in church. I was uh, raised in the Free Will Baptist Church, and after Did I you had to wear like collars. No, we weren't. Oh. We weren't. We weren't crazy like that. Okay, so much. Um, but after I got married, I kind of got out of church for a while and got into crazy theology on the internet. And but uh, yeah, I don't have nearly as uh, cool a backstory as David. You know, he was. <laughs> but um, so after that, I a friend of mine just started asked me to come to Christ Community in the morning. I came back, and I started listening to a lot of Matt Chandler podcasts while I was working. I worked as a janitor at the time, and I learned the gospel through that. And um, through Christ Community, I started coming to Revolution, and I've been here for maybe four years now, three or four years. You were, you were part of the beginning. I remember seeing you there. Um, so what do you, what do, you do to, to support your family? Where are you at? I, uh, I work at McDonald's. Yes, okay. So we're mortal so, enemies. We are not mortal. We are friends. We okay. are just friends from distant countries. Okay. Um, that's, tell us, what, what's, what do you like to do for fun? Give me a hobby. Tell me something about you maybe we don't know. Well, uh, Kim's already spilled the beans. I do like playing Dungeons & Dragons, but uh, not, not so much anymore, but I am, I am into board games, which is equally as geeky. Like, like, are we talking like Risk or like Stratego or like Candyland? No, not Candyland. Uh, they're more obscure games. Um, there's one game called Agricola, which actually Eric... Kimsey, a, what, a what? A what? Agricola. It's Latin for farmer. It's super interesting. It sounds like it. Uh, Kimsey's the, actually the one who got Wait. me in on this. And you play as a struggling farmer from the 17th century trying to make ends meet. 
Like, oh, I can grow tomatoes better than you can? Like, <laughs> Pretty much, yes, actually. I have to see this. This is crazy. Agricola what? Agricola. Agricola. Okay. Agricola. Okay, so, so you're, you're more into board games, but I, I understand you, you're a Star Wars fan? Kind of. My kind wife's of. much more of a Star Wars fan than I am. Okay, well, I knew it was a big deal when your son saw it for the first time. Oh, yeah, that? yes, that was a big deal. Um, Lord of the Rings? Mm, not so much. Okay, so you might have answered I, I, I tried reading Lord of the Rings, and the third time I went through and spent 50 pages learning about moss on trees, I just I couldn't get through it. <laughs> okay, here's my question. Who wins in a fight? Okay, Gandalf the White or Yoda? I, I got, I'm almost thinking Gandalf. Now, now think about that, because Yoda has a cool saber. Yeah, yeah, he does, but the, the little bit I do remember from Lord of the Rings, Gandalf was... Just amazing. He could do anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. So if, if if you think if you think you know Yoda, who thinks Yoda? Who thinks Yoda would win in a fight? Who thinks Gandalf? Who has no idea what we're talking about? And who frankly doesn't care? <laughs> yeah. There we go. I think they win. <laughs> so so Gandalf the White. That's cool. Now I just I think you're wrong again. I'm sorry. I'm so negative tonight. I just think you're wrong. Um. Anyway, that that's just me. What um. Tell us specifically, Corey, what your role is with, for, our leader, for us on the leadership team here um, as you started in, in this journey. Um, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. I'm not entirely sure. I know I get up here and I, I preach some. I do a lot of the media. I'm on the computer making sure the words are on the screen right. And if they're not, you can always just look back and blame me. What? <laughs> Yeah, um, so you do some behind-the-scenes work. You're definitely on the computer. You've definitely been teaching a little bit, you know, but are there other things? You know, you've been doing small groups. You know, I was a part of a small group with you last year where you led us through some stuff and um, some really good teaching there. But um, what, how does your role, again, and I asked this all along, but I want to make sure you have opportunity to answer it as long as everyone else. What, how does your role fit into the mission with uh, Revolution Worship Grow Serve and more importantly, within that, how can we pray for you? Um, well, with the, with the growth, um, I'm leading the growth group. If anyone's interested, come see me. Um, the worship, I'm, I'm, you know, bringing the words on the screen and making it so everyone else here knows what we're singing. Um, how you can be praying for me, um, I do, I, I struggle a lot with pride. And being put up in, like, a leadership position obviously gives me a lot of, a lot of time to think, think of myself in a prideful manner, and I know that that's not right, and that um, everything should be go, go for the glory of God, not for my own glory. So if everyone prays that I can be knocked around a few times and get my pride taken away from me. It will definitely do that. And, um, you know, what's, what's, what's the goal for you um, in life? Is ministry your, your, your thing? You think you really think something God's really pointed you in? Or? I, I think so. I'm not sure in the manner that I'm going to be Later on in life, uh, a while ago, I wanted to be a missionary. Now I, now I'm leaning more towards just being a pastor or some on um, some sort of ministry. But yeah, that's that's my goal in life. So the pride thing is kind of important. Yeah. Well, let's pray for uh, Corey here, and then then he's gonna be teaching a little bit. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for Corey, and thank you for bringing him here and having a part of our team and doing all the behind the scenes work that he does. You know, with with the words on the screen, so we can focus on worshiping um, with um, the 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 small groups he's leading and the teaching he does on here and even the nursery stuff, how it's a blessing it is, um, all the work that he does and how appreciative I am. And I know so many people here are as well. But we pray for Corey um, as he grows into this leadership role here with us, as he continues on this journey you've got him on, that we, you will um, 
just knock him down in his pride if, as it builds up, that you'll just remind him that you are God and you are in control and that you're just using Corey. Um, and uh, we're, we're here to serve you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for the word that you speak through Corey. And uh, as, as we sit here in the Lord, may we, we be receptive to what you have to say. Lord, we love you. It's in your very precious name that we pray. Amen. All right. Let me move this out of the way. How are we all doing tonight? Uh, we've got a lot to cover tonight. I'm going to, unfortunately, have to go by my outline a lot because I have a lot of random facts and figures and statistics and everything. Don't get too hung up on those statistics as I bring them to you. All I'm planning to do with those is to give you some assurance that the Gospels were written when we believe they were written and um, by who we say they, were, uh, the, they claim who was written. Um, we, we adhere to a faith that has a, uh, a Bible that's 2,000 years old at its youngest point and up to 3,600 years old at its oldest point. There's also, in the spiritual realm, there's the 1,400-year-old Koran. There's um, the Analytics of Confucianism, which is about 2,300 years old. And uh, the 63-year-old 63 63 Dianetics of Scientology. There are also many other faiths. There's the Baha'i world faith. There's um, Mormonism, Hindu, Taoism. Any, you, the list goes on, and they all have their specific religious texts. How are we supposed to know that our Bible is reliable above theirs? You know, isn't there too much confusion? Isn't there too much argument between the different religious faiths? And how can we be for sure that what we believe in the Bible is true? But we do believe what we read in the Bible is true, right? But some bring the claim that they were written by backwoods shepherds of the first century. That they, they have no real authority, they have no real learning, they have no, nothing of that sort. Some even claim they weren't even written in the first century, that they were written much later than Jesus. You know, Generations after Jesus came, no one really knew. It was based off of uh, superstition, based off of previous myths, and... They um, believe that, uh, some people claim that uh, it, the Bible was written to solidify power of the church. Um, we also struggle with external evidence. Is there really any kind of evidence to suggest that what is in the Bible is true, what it is, what it is, is trustworthy? And um, if all those are true, what about bringing up through the ages. You know, we, we didn't have a good method of copying. We didn't have some master file off in some hard drive somewhere. We had scribes copying other scribes, copying other scribes with no original texts. Can we trust them? And above all else, what about the bias? If all of that's true, the Bible is obviously a biased book. It is a book, a religious text trying to convert, convert people to their religion. How can we trust something that is so biased. Um, I get most of my information tonight from a book called Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. If you guys haven't read that book and you're interested in this at all, I would suggest reading that book. It, um, I've found most of this information other places too, but he puts it so, so well in his book. I'm kind of following his outline here. There's also a great book called um, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, which is in a very similar vein to this. And I would suggest both of those. But in Cold Case Christianity, uh, J. Warner Wallace is a cold case detective. He, he, works on, he works on cases that have 
you know, 20, 30 years after a murder, and he tries to bring him back into the limelight and solve the case, and he's, he's actually quite successful at his job. But he tells about his conversion to Christianity. He was a bitter atheist. He didn't want to do anything with church, and eventually one of his co-workers, I think, or one of his friends kept badgering him, come to church, come to church, come to church, and finally he just, and really in order to shut the person up, get, came, uh, came to church. And through the message, he didn't really care much about Jesus as a Christ or anything like that. He just cared about, he started looking at the Gospels and wanted to see if they were reliable as eyewitnesses. And through that, through his, his um, conviction that the Gospels were actually reliable eyewitnesses, he came to Christ. And um, it was because of the, the witness, um, excuse me, he, uh, he had four questions that he would ask about any, any witness in his, in his line of work where he's uh, ask, um, interviewing people whether or not they were reliable. If they were reliable, they, were, they could be used well in court. And the four, uh, four questions are, were they there? Were the witnesses in the place where they said they were? You know, they could just be trying to help out a buddy by saying, hey, I was there, I saw it, he didn't stab that guy. Were they corroborated, or is there any external evidence, external or, or internal evidence, suggesting that they are true? Are they accurate, and are they biased? If something has an obvious bent to it, then you can, you can feel that they're going to portray things in a way that is beneficial to them and um, dis- disadvantageous to the others. So let's, let's jump right in, start at the first one. Um, were they there? Um, many people claim that, you know, the Gospels were late, late, written late, much after the, um, much after the date they claimed they were. And it's kind of like this. Um, do you remember the, the snowpocalypse that we had last Tuesday, you know, that terrible snowstorm? Everyone, everyone was freaking out about it, what, weren't they? Um, People that aren't from this area don't really understand why we here in southern Ohio freak out so much about any mention of snow. But about 10 years ago, we had this massive ice storm. We had eight inches of snow, followed by freezing rain, just tore down power lines left and right. We didn't have any power. Most, most of Scioto County was out of power for at least a week, maybe more. And ever since then, any mention of the word snow just causes people to flip their lids. Um, so, you know, the Weather Channel was, was predicting less than an inch of snow. And someone probably got on there and said, hey, we're getting snow, today, snow on Tuesday. It's about an inch. The next person says, hey, we're going to get an, uh, snow, maybe an, maybe an inch or two. And, it gets, and I kid you not, some woman at church or at, at work last, two weeks ago came in freaking out saying, I don't know how I'm going to get to work. We're going to get a foot of snow on Tuesday. And, but that's, if that's how the Gospels were, if that's what the people who wrote the Gospel were like, if they were the cousin of a friend, of an acquaintance, of someone who actually saw Jesus then we can't trust them. But if they were actually there, and they actually witnessed the works of Christ, we can trust them. Um, first, let's, let's talk about when the Bible is written, because that's, that's a big thing. People say that it's written 2nd, 3rd century, um, maybe written to solidify the religion that uh, Constantine created from the Roman Empire. But... Um, the Bible does not talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That happened in the year 70. In fact, Matthew, in Matthew 24, 1 through 3, wrote about it. 
wrote about, and he said, As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciple pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone of them will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? And that's exactly what happened at 70 AD. And it's interesting that this is in the book of Matthew, because elsewhere in the book of Matthew, he talks about over at least 10 times, maybe more, times of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled. And he uses that as proof of the Messiah of Jesus. Wouldn't it be convenient if it was written after the destruction of the temple to easily say, this happened, this actually happened, Jesus was prophesied true, but it's in nowhere in there. In the book of Luke, I mean, the book of Acts, written by Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, uh, he, do, he does not talk about the uh, deaths of James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, or Peter. James died in 62, Paul died in 64, and Peter in 65. But he does go into great detail about Stephen and James, the brother of John, their deaths. So we, we, we get this feeling that Luke was written before Acts, and Acts was written before 62. Matthew was written before uh, uh, 70 AD. So we, we're already starting to see that the Gospels were written a lot earlier than some people claim. Furthermore, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul quotes Luke. He quotes the book of Luke, interestingly actually calling it Scripture. And I'm not going to get into all these because I'm, I'm, trying, to get through pretty, I'm trying to get through a lot of um, detail, but... That was written in 63. But even almost 10 years earlier, Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians in the mid-50s. And his account of the Last Supper is very strikingly similar to the, the account of the Last Supper in the book of Luke. Um, it's so much so that many people think that it's actually a quote. It's not word for word, but quotes in the first century were not as, were not as concrete as word for word. So we get the, the feeling that Luke was written maybe in the mid-50s. Luke, but Luke seems to have gotten a lot of his information from Matthew and Mark. He quotes 250 verses from the book of Matthew and 350 verses from the book of Mark. So those books had to have been written before Luke. So Luke was written in the mid-50s and Matthew and Mark was written before then. So we can see that Mark was written probably in the year 45 to 50, Matthew is right after that, and Luke was in the early to mid-50s. So we've, we've covered the first three Gospels. Um, a lot of people say, well, what about the Gospel of John? It's, it's totally different than the other Gospels. It tells about different things. Uh, it was written much later. And the Gospel of John was written much later. It was written maybe around 90. But this guy, he, John, lived into his 90s. He was exiled. And it makes a lot of sense that if there's three, three books of the Bible, three accounts of Jesus' life, that have very similar content, he might want to fill in some of the gaps that are written, that, that are not mentioned in the, other one, in the other books. He might want to fill in and tell a more well-rounded uh, version of, of Jesus' life. Um, so, then, so then we have that. But what about Mark and Luke? They weren't apostles. They weren't actual eyewitnesses to Christ, were they? Well, in a manner of speaking, they, they were. Mark, it's, it's well, well thought of that Mark was actually an apostle of Peter. 
and that the book of Mark is actually most likely one of Peter's sermons that he gave that Mark wrote down. He, he followed Mark, he followed Peter very closely and wrote down Peter's eyewitness. So the book of Mark is most likely the eyewitness of Peter. And the book of Luke, he clearly says that he went out and he found eyewitnesses, numerous eyewitnesses, including the previous two gospels, to write his account. So he wasn't necessarily an eyewitness, but he was a reporter reporting on the eyewitnesses. All right, so we've covered the first one. Let's jump into uh, corroborated. Um, If there's no evidence that something happened, you can write about it all you want. You can you can say say whatever happened. I can I can make any any numerous claim that I want, and if there's no witnesses, if there's no um, there's no evidence to say that I have, I could say that I jumped to the moon or something, and no one can technically prove me wrong besides besides the fact that it you know breaks physics and everything, but th- it could be a miracle, and I could have jumped the moon, but there's no evidence that I was actually to the moon. I have no moon rocks. I have no dust on my feet. Nothing like that. Um, so were there any corrob- corroboration or external evidence? Well, let's go to the first, the most uh, famous example. Everyone, everyone who's grown up in church has heard that about Josephus uh, verifying the life of Christ. The problem with the, the account that most people point to with Josephus is that there's some obvious insertions to it by Christians. It's, it's claiming that he, wrote, he definitely rose from the grave and he was the Messiah, but Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Why would he know all that and not convert to Christianity? But there is a quote of Josephus that seems to predate that because it ha- does not have any of the troublesome insertions in it. It's from a, uh, it's from a uh, Arabian historian. I've, uh, the name slips me right now, but can we uh, put it up here, Eric? This is uh, uh, Agapius. He's quoting Josephus. Um, he says, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after the crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Notice it doesn't actually say he was risen from the grave. It just says that he it was reported that he's risen from the grave. But that, that predates all the, the, um, the perversions that Christians have added on there to um, further solidify their point. But that, that quote's still even um, disputed. But we have a Roman senator named Tacitus in his annals. Um, he writes about Christians named, uh, named for a, a guy named Christus. He got the name wrong but who, who would willingly die and not recant, and I believe he calls it an overwhelming evil or something like that. We also have, um, where is it, Marabar Serapin, a Syrian philosopher, and Phlegon, I, I'm murdering these people's names, a historian. They talk about the life of Christ and um, his supposed crucifixion. Even more compelling, though, that uh, Phlegon and Thallus, another historian, talk about the darkness that surrounded the, the world at the crucifixion. That is, that's compelling to me. Because I, I always thought, well, there's this whole, this darkness that comes out of nowhere. Why, why don't we have any evidence of that? Well, we do. We have two, maybe even more historians talking about it. And they claim that it's uh, a lunar eclipse that appeared out of nowhere. But it does confirm, it does seem to point to uh, the confirmation of the darkness that surrounded the, the death of Jesus. 
Um, archaeology also starts to uh, confirm the Bible. There's, you, you always see these skeptics saying, well, this person wasn't in the Bible, this person wasn't in the Bible, this place wasn't in the Bible. This, they obviously had no idea who they were talking about or the area that they were talking about. But more and more, these people and places get confirmed in the place that they were supposed to be at the time they were supposed to be. Um, just, just a list of them. There's Quirinius and Lysanius and Pontius Pilate were all people that skeptics pointed to and said, they weren't there in the first century Palestine. They can't, the Bible can't be accurate. And lo and behold, later archaeology digs up inscriptions with their name in first century Palestine saying that they were there. There's also places. There's the pools of Bethesda and Siloam were often disputed, and they have been found. And just this week I was reading an article recently, uh, a town called Dalmanutha, which was mentioned in Mark 8, was recently found. And that was another one that skeptics pointed to, saying Dalmanutha was nowhere near where the Bible said they were. They had no idea where it was. And it was exactly in the place where it was described in Mark. Um, and now let's go inside. The, the, the Gospels kind of, they corroborate themselves. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a geek, and I get geeked out about stuff like this. You guys probably won't find this nearly as, interested as interesting as I do. But um, the use of names that the gospel writers used is entirely consistent with the percentage of names that um, existed in first century Palestine. You, you, read, um, you read fictional books like me and my wife. We're rock and fun party people. We are uh, currently listening to the Harry Potter series in our car as we drive. And we are on book six, just started. Um, Umbridge finally got her due. It was way too long in the coming. But uh, anyway... I asked her today, I was like, is there any name here that's even repeated once? And she's like, I don't, I don't think there are any names that are repeated once. And you see that in, in fictional literature. You want to give your characters something that is um, unique to them so that it's, there's no, there's no um, question to, as to who you're talking about. But we don't see that in the, in the Bible. We have, um, in the first century Palestine, Simon and Joseph were the most common names at about 15.5% of the people were named Simon and Joseph. And in the Bible, it's just over 18% are named Simon and Joseph. In fact, could you throw the list of Simons up here? In the Bible, we have Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, Simon the brother of Jesus, Simon the leper, Simon from Cyrene, Simon the Pharisee, Simon Iscariot, who is the father of Judas, Simon the sorcerer, and Simon the tanner. Now, they were just creating this out of thin air. Don't you think they could be a little more original than that? Um, also, those names were unique those the the um, popularity of Simon and Joseph were unique to first century Palestine in Egypt at the time had totally different names. The people who wrote the Bible either were very good guessers, very good researchers as to pull the most elaborate hoax of all time, or actually were from first century Palestine writing about real people and I find the first two to be very unlikely. Mary is also a very common female name, and that's also used by more people in the, in the New Testament than anyone else. So we've, we've got that there is evidence pointing to the fact that the Bible was where, they, where it was and that the events actually may have happened. But let's go to accuracy. Um, we've, we've, as children, a lot of us have played the game Telephone, where one person says an elaborate uh, sentence to one person, and they keep um, snaking it around, and everybody, every, by the end of it, it's something totally different. In fact, 
I play a game on the internet, and it's it's hilarious called Drawception, and it has a a text, and then the next one is a picture someone draws, and the next one the person only sees the picture, and it just gets crazy. Um, I was thinking about bringing one up here, but I found it a little inappropriate. That started with combination of ho- holidays, and by the end, it had a naked Jew. <laughs> so, um, possibly because I, I drew a, I drew a man. Uh, the the panel I had, I drew a, a man holding a menorah, just uh, artistically covering some area of his body. But anyway, we we. That's how a lot of people think that the um, the transmission of the Bible was. They they uh, they believe that you know one scribe copied another scribe and copied another scribe and you know starts over here and we've got the original text. Then there's a scribe that copied it and a scribe that copied it and a scribe that copied it and a scribe that copied it. And if there's a mistake over here, if someone put the wrong word, then over here that same word's going to be wrong. Or even worse someone putting their own theological input over here and our own theology is messed up but that would only that would only be true is if the scribes there is only one copy of the book out there at a time and the scribe who copied it destroyed the previous copy then the next scribe took his copy and destroyed it after copying it and then we would have no records but we don't have that we have an amazing trail of evidence going back to nearly the, the original copies. We do not have the original copies, but we have some copies from within 100 years. We have over 5,600 surviving Greek fragments and manuscripts. 2,000 of those are from the Gospels. And through a, um, a, through a uh, process called um, textual criticism, the, the critics have found that the, the Bible is within 99.5% accuracy of the original text because we have so much information out there. But if we didn't even have the Bible, if we didn't even have those, those fragments, we could piece together nearly the, entire, the, nearly the entire New Testament solely by quotes from the church fathers. Um, I'm not sure how much that is. I didn't really get into all that. But the church fathers quoted the Bible so extensively that there that we could almost piece together the entire Bible just by their quotes. So we've gone through the first three. We've gone through that they that the the gospel writers were most definitely there. It was written in the mid first century by people who were eyewitnesses. We have that there is evidence pointing to the fact that that stuff actually happened when it happened. And we have that it, it is most definitely accurately pres- uh, preserved for us. So let's go on to the last question. Are they biased? Are the Gospels biased? Yes. Yes, they are biased. Um, in the book of John, in John twenty thirty through 31, could we throw that up there? Yeah. He's very quite clear about his bias. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. So we can't trust the Gospels now. We've gone through all that and we find out that they're biased. Well, I don't think so. Name one historian that has not, when putting his pen to paper, included some form of bias. Even if they just 
recorded events. This event happened, and this event happened, this event happened, did not include why or how or anything like that. It still would have bias based on what they put in there and what they left out. There is no way human beings can write anything without bias. But there is a difference when there are motivations, when we look into the motivations of the bias. If there are good motivations, like if Christ actually lived and died and rose again, and they wrote this as a response for that, that's a good motivation to have bias. But if they have, um, if they have bad uh, motivations, then they can, uh, it's, it's suspect. Um, could we throw the next quote up there? It's, this is a quote from Cold Case Christianity. Uh, talking about it. He said, In all my years of working homicides, I've come to discover that only three broad motives lie at the heart of any murder. As it turns out, these three motives are also the same driving forces behind other types of misbehavior. They are the reasons why we sometimes think what we shouldn't think, say what we shouldn't say, or do what we shouldn't do. And these three motives are financial gain, sexual or relational desire, and pursuit of power. And if you think about that, anything in your life, anything evil or bad or wicked that we do can pretty much be boiled down to one of those. We are greedy, so we steal. We, we have lust in our hearts. We go online and look at pornography, or we try to hook up with, a, hook up with someone in a one-night stand. You know, we can trace anything we have back there. Um, but let's talk about the motivation of the apostles. Um, I'm just going to knock out greed and sex together. There's, in all of our literature that we have that d- describes the life of the apostles after the, ri- the Bible was written, we have none, zero, that claim they did it for anything for uh, greed or, or sex. It even, there's even church fathers that talk about the apostles bringing their wives along with them and not even engaging in sex with their wives while they're on mission for God because they were afraid that it would um, distract them from the... the the task at hand. We have a quote here from Clement of Alexandria. He's talking about um, Paul. The only reason why he did not take his wife about with him was that it would have been an inconvenience for his ministry. The apostles, in accordance with their particular ministry, devoted themselves to preaching without any distraction and took their wives with them, not as women whom they had marriage relations, but as sisters, that they might be their fellow ministers in dealing with housewives. So the first two motivations did not motivate the apostles. But there, there's that persistent claim that power was what de- motivated. There's, there's even the claim from people who have a very shaky grasp on history that um, Constantine, the, the Roman Empire, invented Christianity to solidify power for himself. Um, where, where, were the Gospels written to gain power? Were they written to cause us to think a certain way, to, to behave in a certain way? Were they, were they ethnic crowd control where the people have to follow these rules and it just makes it a lot easier for the rulers on hand? Well, let's, let's look at this. Um, there is certainly, there's certainly, especially the corruption through the church, there is certainly times when the church had a lot of power and there are certainly times when the church abused that power. But it's not fair to judge the apostles, the people who wrote the Bible by those same standards, because they weren't the ones um, abusing the power. Let's see how, how they had power. Um, what things can power get? It can get you wealth. We've already covered the apostles had no wealth. It can get you sexual se- sex. It can get you respect. It can get anything. We see that in a lot of cults. We see a lot of cults today where the, the leader solidifies power on himself, 
and he ha- he's a millionaire while he, he sucks the people dry of all their money. And he has concubines and a harem full of all the young women in the, tr- in the cult. And, you know, there, there's certainly abuse of power and motives there. But do, do the apostles have that? Well, most of all, above wealth, sex, respect, anything else, power gets you protection. You cannot enjoy sex. You cannot enjoy wealth. You cannot enjoy anything else if you're dead. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about some of the apostles. Let's uh, bring up first Acts 7, 54 through 60. Um, we have uh, here, Stephen is accused from the Jewish leaders by, of blasphemy. He was a deacon of the early church in Jerusalem. And let's pick up uh, after they've questioned him. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, go back please, look, I see the heavens opened up into the Son of Man standing in the place of honor in the God's right hand, okay? Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They didn't even want to hear what he had to say. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who later becomes Paul and writes the majority, the mo- most books in the Bible. As they stoned him, stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell, fell down to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with the sin. And with that, he died. And now we go to Acts 12 talking about uh, James, the brother of John, his uh, death. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the, apostles, the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Um, it's interesting to think, see that the church prayed earnestly for Peter. That's all they could do. They could only rely on God for this. They could not rely on any of their political, political cronies that they're getting through this religion. They could not rely on any sort of power. They had to rely solely on God. They had no power of their own. So let's look at some of the, some of the apostles... Um, after the Bible, there's, there's a lot of wonky um, versions of uh, the apostles' death. There's some that say, there's some claims that some apostles died in England and all the way down into like India or something like that. So let's throw those out. Let's, let's talk about, we have four accounts of apostles or close, um, uh, or you know, deacons or whatever of the church that died that we have fairly reliable accounts of. We have Peter, who was crucified, and if tradition tells us, uh, is anything to believe. He was crucified upside down. That's why the guys from Shook Like Dead Men used the upside down cross on their um, album cover because they are unworthy of dying the same way that Christ died. That's why Peter was crucified upside down. We have um, Paul, who was the lucky one. He was a Roman citizen. He, he only got his head cut off. He did not have to suffer the indignation of shame of being crucified. We have uh, John, the apostle, the apostle John, who wrote the book of John, Revelation, and the three... Um, book John 1, 2, and 3 of the letters. Um, if church history is to be believed there, the authorities tried to boil him alive in hot oil, and that didn't work. 
So instead, they just exiled him to an island, a deserted island, to die probably of exposure. And then let's come to um, James, the brother of Jesus. Um, Josephus talks about him. He just Josephus just talks about how he angered the Jewish leaders. They uh, accused him of wrongdoing and had him killed. But there's a um, another historian, and I'm going to murder this name too, Hegesippus. He had a much more detailed record of James's death. He says that the the Pharisees took him to the top of the temple, and seeing that he was the brother of Jesus, they were trying to coerce him to start um, saying things to help their cause and harm Christianity. But he refused to. He started preaching at them. And that angered them. And they were at the top of the temple. So they threw him down, and he fell down and landed in the street below. But that didn't kill him. Instead, he gets up on his knees and starts praying to God in a similar manner than Stephen prayed. Forgive them for their sins. And that angered them. They ran down to the streets began to stone him, and one man in the street had a club and smashed his head in the street. And that's how he died. That was the brother of Jesus. Now, I have an older brother, and growing up with him, I was more aware of his shortcomings than anyone else, probably. I, I know he had a little He-Man toy, and he would, he would flick out. It had a little tongue that would flick in and out, and he told me that that, to- that tongue was poison. And if it touched me, I would die instantly. And he would chase me around the house with this little He-Man toy. He's like, you're going to die. I don't think my parents ever found out that was going on. I was terrified of the toy. It took me till I was about 15 or 16. I found it in a toy box, and I, I, le- and I you know, just kind of touched it just to make sure that you know, it really wasn't poison. And, um, but I know his shortcomings. I, I would be willing to die for my brother to save his life. But if he had some convoluted lie that he's the Messiah and that... You know, he's the son of God and everything else. If he, if he went around telling people that he was God, I would not be willing to die for that. If I was, you know, loose in my morals, I might use it to get, get things, but I would not die for it. I would recant. But Stephen, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, did not recant. Why were the apostles willing to die? Well, before we answer that, let's watch this video real quick.历史事件的含义不会自动呈现出来，而总是由人来解释的。六月五日清晨的这一瞬间，将成为永恒的历史象征。后来，它消失在人群中，下落不明，连姓名都难以确认。对于全世界千百万的电视观众来说， 这一时刻的含义非常清楚，这是人类良知与勇气在向无情的国家机器挑战。中国政府对这一场面的解释同样简单，只是截然相反。稍有常识的人都会看出，如果我们的铁骑继续前进，这个螳臂挡车的歹
that's a very, I'm sure most of us have at least seen a picture of him standing in front of the line of tanks telling them to stop. That happened in 1989 in Tiananmen Square in China. There was protests there attempting to get the Chinese government to give people more democratic process, more freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of press. And that man believed so much in his cause that he was willing to stand in front of a line of tanks. That, that video showed one-tenth of the amount of tanks that were lined up. And at any time, the tank operator could have just put his pedal on the gas and run the man over. But he was so willing to die for his cause, he believed in so much that he put his own life in danger. And the apostles, they believed in the cause of Jesus that much. They, the only reason that I feel that the apostles would have died in the manner that they did for Jesus was that Jesus was actually telling the truth. And that the gospels that we have in the Bible are actually truthful accounts of Jesus. Why would the apostles die for Jesus if it were all a lie? And going forth, we can have that same confidence that the gospels were telling the truth, that we can set aside everything, even if it means our life, for the man who was God, who came down from heaven, took our sins to the cross, forgiving us, and rose again. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the gospels that we have. Thank you for the, the, that we can trust them, that you've given us enough, enough information to be able to trust, truthfully trust them. Help us go forth, Lord, as followers who, is willing, who are willing to, even if we have to, die as the apostles did, because we can trust that what you said in your gospels was true. Please be with us as we worship and help us all to glorify your name. In Jesus' name.